Uh, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> Why don't you years? Oh. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what do you think? Hello and welcome to Raise a Glass, the podcast where we discuss the stories and storytellers that shape us. I am Hunter Danson. And I am Eric Linsala. Uh, this week we have a potluck episode. Eric and I have each brought something and we don't know what the other person has brought. So the, I realize that the the anticipation for us is not something that our viewers are gonna have though. Unless yeah, because that's like it'll, it's in the right the name of the episode. So So you but, know something we don't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What an exciting moment. Yeah. Uh but before Eric and I cut the tension, I have to know <laughs> I have to know what's like, what's in your glass, Eric. <laughs> uh, I have uh, in my in my trip to Aldi this, Aldi this week, I stumbled upon uh, two variations of a tried and true drink that I've brought up on a previous episode. And no, it is not Arnold Palmer, and no, it is not water. It is in fact eggnog. Uh, I decided to try out a different uh, version of eggnog instead of burned dairy, which is the one that I hold as the greatest. Mm. It's an old-fashioned eggnog. Um, okay. I don't have the bottle in front of me. Otherwise, I'd make it sound much fancier than it is. Uh, it's a little too sweet for me, though. Oh. Uh, it's not bad, yeah. but it's, it's just, just... I almost like tasted it. And I was like, you know what? I want to like shave some nutmeg and put it in. Maybe a little allspice. <laughs> And at that point, like, you know, there's a, there's a challenge, maybe some cloves actually. Mm. Anyways, what is in your glass hunter? Um, I have some homemade hot mm. chocolate. Uh, yeah, I heated some milk and some dark chocolate Whoa. stove. I've never done it before. And I looked up a recipe a couple days ago, but when I was okay. doing it, I was making cookies at the same time. So I'm like, I'm just going to do whatever. And, put the chocolate in there so i don't really know how it came out but um have you tasted it yet oh, okay oh is it a liquid it, it is liquid um <laughs> i saw your face i'm not <laughs> it's it tastes good it's just kind of a weird texture mm. is it like silty silky silky silty yeah. salt yeah isn't that what it's like um on the banks of the nile yeah, it's not like silty. It's just like that the chocolate is stringy. Mm. It's not like totally melted in there. Okay. If you can imagine like Yes, I can. Chocolate silica. I now, how did you do it? Did you boil the milk and then put the chocolate in? Yeah, I well, I put the chocolate in as I was boiling the milk. Mm. I probably should have stirred it more. Yeah, definitely. I have used a lot of um double boilers when making not hot chocolate, but like ganaches. And I'm wondering if that might have helped the process as well. So there's like less direct heat. Yeah. I also have a cookie though to save it. Oh, nice. I have a peanut butter cookie. Mm. I made some banana bread this today. Mm. I didn't bring a, a chunk of that. Should have. It's in the other room now. It's a long way away. 
Hunter, I have a question for you. Um, when we say our intro line, we say the, the stories and storytellers that shape us. Should it be the stories and storytellers who shape us? It's one of those questions I've always had. What is the correct grammatical space? Like, is, Because a storyteller is a person who does something, but a story is a written thing or a thing that shapes us. So if, it was, if it's stories and storytellers who shape us, should it be who shape us versus storytellers and stories that shape us? Yeah, I mean, I guess that feels more natural to me because <laughs> I think that can is more general. It, I don't know if it's actually grammatically co- correct but i think if if it was just storytellers then it would be who okay would be more accurate but since mm-hmm. we have stories and storytellers that um i know my wife if she listens to this one probably will know the correct correct uh grammar um but I, I am not a gram, grammarian. Um, grammarian. Ironically, but I think there's an argument to be made that writer, my favorite writers break the rules all the time. So Yeah, we've talked about that, uh, actually. That's I'm my really excuse. excited to talk about what I brought today because okay. of, because of uh, you and your, your occupation and, and interests. So. Oh, boy. Um. Well, in addition to that, we always talk about what we're raising a glass or pouring one out for. Um, Hunter, what about you? What are you raising a glass or pouring one out for this week? Oh, boy. Um, I'm raising a glass to Curiosity Stream. Uh, it is a documentary streaming service. It costs $14 a year. Uh, and you get all kinds of pretty well-done documentaries. Um, unlike netflix and the quote-unquote history channel uh (laughs) they um they don't give a platform to uh dubious credentialed uh credentialed scientists um they (laughs) they generally get like actual scientists and and do good interviews um and they have some really like more recent stuff that they've done with uh dinosaurs that that we've been watching because my son is getting in dinosaurs mm. um, and doing, you know, explaining some of the more recent finds uh, that, that they figured out uh, and, and doing really pretty high quality animations um, and the more recent ones. So curiosity Sweet. stream uh, is pretty great. Um, no, they, they sponsor YouTubers and stuff. I'm, I'm obviously not sponsored, but uh, I just, I think they're good. You know, it's like the only, yeah, yeah, it's the only streaming service we actually pay for with our own money at this point. So, um, and I'm going to pour one out for, uh, screen addiction. Uh, I've been trying to, to reduce screen time in my life. Um, and it's not easy, uh, uh, apps, websites, games, um, a lot of them are designed to hold our attention 
uh, and they do it pretty well. Um, and it's, uh, it's just a bad situation. Um, and a lot of like, especially in gaming, like a lot of the triple a games, especially multiplayer games are almost enabling like underage gambling. Um, like it's the way it feels when you play some of these games, like uh, with loot boxes and uh, other things. And they're just designed to keep you playing. Um, they might, there might be a good game under there, but there's so much, uh, marketing and just greedy cash grabbing on top of it. And it's to children and it, that just sucks. So I'm pouring yeah. one out. Um, well, well, continuing in our, our, our theme, which I've brought up in previous weeks of you being uh, generally unselfish in uh, talking about uh, things and me talking specifically about um, myself <laughs> or things I'm working on. Uh, this is my attempt to make it broader. Uh, I, I'm going to be raising a glass to finished products, projects, mm. not products, projects. Um, I know uh, previous week I lifted up uh, grandparents as they both help you in projects and watch your kids while you finish them, even though they do many more things than that. I have, in fact, finished a project in our house. Uh, we had a spiral staircase from our basement into mm-hmm. our kitchen that had a railing that went straight into the ground. You saw it. Yeah. And I was like, oh, our son is now crawling. And he is crawling. As of this past week, he is actively crawling. And like pulling himself up and standing is terrifying. Um, and so not only did uh, cover it, put a um, tabletop over it, but there's now a movable butcher block that can be raised or lowered uh, uh-huh. so you can still access the staircase. Um, okay. Which is really exciting. Uh, it's something that I thought about since we moved in over a year ago that is now completed. So it's not a slide yet. Not yet. That is that is next on the list. Uh, I I have to figure out exactly how to do that. Um, yeah, I don't think I could uh, build that by hand, at least not yeah. safely. Because <laughs> um, I'd want a tube slide. Let's be honest; they're the best. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I am inversely going to pour it out for unfinished product projects <laughs> that. Uh, loom over your head. Uh, so I'm in the room next to the room where the finished staircase is. And I have been meaning to put up lights and do other things in this room for a couple weeks. And it seems like it keeps getting pushed back. And then I see it and I'm like, Ugh. and then of course it's sitting on your table. And so just mm. the, the pressure of those. Um, but Yeah, they are what they are. Do what you can. Mm-hmm. So, Hunter, I am very interested to hear what you're bringing okay. to the podcast today. Um, yeah, sure, sure. What what are you bringing? I am bringing "Waiting for Godot." Waiting for Godot. Yes, which is a play by Samuel Beckett. Okay. Um, and this open, isn't about Gal Gadot, right? 
No. <clears throat> no. <laughs> uh, it opened in Paris in 1953 um, at a tiny... At the tiny left bank theater de Babylon and has since become a cornerstone of 20th century theater. That's from the back of the book. Um, it was originally written in French uh, and then it was translated by the author himself. Really? Um, yep. Samuel Beckett was born in Dublin, graduated from. Uh, not the one that shall not be named, but one that shall even less be named. Um, and ah. lived most of his life in Paris, I guess. <laughs> but he wrote Waiting for Godot. Uh, it is... <laughs> it's it's almost... It's very hard to define. It's kind of part of like... You could call it existentialist um, literature. Uh, it is absurdist. Uh, it is... And, but honestly, it's just funny and <laughs> it's just fun. And that's why I like it. Yeah. Um, and there's, there's like, it is, I reread it and uh, I could honestly just reread it a third time because okay. it's just so much fun. And you, the word play and the kind of weird places it goes. And um, there are so many different interpretations of this play that, I, I I tried to do some research uh, and quickly realized that like no one really knows what this is about. And Samuel Beckett <laughs> himself never really said. So um, I think there are, are some things that you can infer from the text, but it's really not much. And it, but the, the words and the um, sentences and uh the setting of the play is, I think, gets at something kind of universal of uh, about the mystery of the human experience. Uh, okay. Have you heard of Waiting for Godot? No, I have not. I, I've, All right. you, I haven't heard it awesome. in our conversations. I have. No idea. Like you said, it's funny. You said it's existentialist. You said people have no idea what it's actually about. <laughs> uh, and you said it's absurd. And yes, uh, I'm still, who is this Godot we're waiting for? Like, so tell us, tell me more. The um, two main characters are uh, Vlad Vladimir and Estragon. Uh, and then there's two side characters that come in. Um, Pazzo and Lucky and then there's two boys who are messengers for Godot and the setting of this play it only has one scene okay. and it is kind of this this desolate area supposedly there's a road there uh, and there's a tree and Vladimir and Estragon come in and they're waiting for Godot that's all they're doing and they just uh have these kind of exchanges back and forth about why they're waiting for Godot. They talk about maybe hanging each other, hanging themselves on the tree. Um, at, they're kind of like run down in life. They're, they're poor. Um, one of the things that I chuckled at when I was reading through again was uh, <laughs> Vladimir asks uh, Estragon at one point, are you a poet? And um, Estragon 
gestures to his rags and says, isn't it obvious? (laughs) (laughs) You're a uh, man of the profession, I assume. (laughs) Right. Yeah. (laughs) Isn't it obvious? (laughs) Um, And there are moments like that throughout the whole thing. Uh, And I mean, that's really it. I mean, Pazzo and Lucky come in. Pazzo's kind of like this businessman at first. That's how he comes in. He's kind of portly. He's got a basket. Lucky, he has a rope around his neck and he's basically got Lucky on a, le- on a leash. Um, and Lucky, you're not really sure about Lucky. He's kind of played as like a fool or kind of an idiot. Um, he, he doesn't really talk. He he has one tirade, which I plan to read because okay. it just has to be read. Um, and but that's like all he does, all he says. Okay. He just kind of carries the bags. And uh, Pazzo talks to Vladimir and Estragon. They have kind of witty exchanges, um, and they're still just waiting for Godot. They they. They are pretty sure they're supposed to be there at that time. They say like, oh, maybe it was supposed to be yesterday or maybe it was supposed to be tomorrow. They don't really, but they, 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 they're waiting for Godot. They want to meet him. And, and is Godot an important person? Uh, it's, it's assumed that he is okay. um, because they need to meet him for some reason. And have they uh, met him before? Uh. I don't think so. It doesn't say, I don't think it says that they've met him before in the text. (laughs) Um, They just get these messages from boys who work for Godot. Um, So Hunter, you're, 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 I'm, I'm, as you're telling me this, I'm envisioning a combination of two things. Uh, I'm going to share them and you can tell me how wrong I am. Um, the, the part a is, um, Oh, the places you'll go by Dr. Seuss, the waiting place. You remember that space in, 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 Oh, the place you'll go. It's a place where everybody's waiting, waiting wow. for the train to come, waiting for the paint to dry, waiting for the rain to fall. Everybody's waiting. So that's a piece. Mm-hmm. The second piece I'm envisioning that goes alongside it, um, is, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, <laughs> when the, um, or, or Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, it both could work in this scenario. No, they're very different movies. Um, and, you know, of course, based on the book, but when all of the kids and their guardian enter a space and they're kind of chatting a little bit among themselves, waiting for Willy Wonka to show up. Um, so a combination of that, like everything's kind of falling apart, everything's kind of just quiet, but then having some conversations among there about the anticipation of this character who they've never met, but who's invited them to a space um, that uh, will promise uh, at the very least something they've never experienced before. Yeah. Um, I think that, there's you could definitely write an essay about that i think that's the thing about waiting for godot is that you could take it 
almost anywhere. Okay. Um, uh, personally, I th- I think there are some things in the text that I mean. <sighs> So, for example, one of the popular interpretations, and the and the one that I thought when I first read it at the end, was that Godot uh, is God. So they're waiting mm-hmm. for God, and uh, apparently, in the the French pronunciation of Godot is 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 more like Gado. The like the first syllable is emphasized, so the God part. Um, yeah. And I'm pretty sure that in the English version, it's supposed to be pronounced that way as well. Um, I'm pronouncing it Godot, I think, because uh, probably maybe because of Gal Godot. Um, but uh, so I think that is that is one piece of evidence that probably points to it being God and. Um, okay. There, there are um, biblical references in here. Um, so there's a point where they meet a boy who comes from Godot. I, I believe this is the first one. I'm going to try and read this exchange. Um, and so this is right after the boy leaves. And... And the boy says he'll probably come tomorrow. Um, and they ask him to tell him that they saw us. Um, so Vladimir says, At last, to Estragon, what are you doing? Estragon, pale for weariness. Vladimir, eh? Estragon, of climbing heaven and gazing on the likes of us. Vladimir, your boots. What are you doing with your boots? Estragon, I'm leaving them there. Another will come just as as me, but with smaller feet, and they'll make him happy. He he has a really hard time taking off his boots uh, earlier in the play. That's like the first thing he's doing. So his boots um, are too too small. Yeah. Okay. Vladimir, but you can't go barefoot. Estragon, Christ did. Vladimir, Christ? What does Christ got to do with it? You're not going to compare yourself to Christ. Estragon. All my life, I've compared myself to him. Vladimir, but where he lived, it was warm. It was dry. Estragon, yes. And they crucified quick. And and a, throughout the play, they're always saying that they're going to do something, and then they don't do it. <laughs> um, like, but at the end of this, they're like, Estragon says, well, shall we go? And Vladimir says, yes, let's go. And then it says they do not move. Um, <laughs> so I I don't know. I think it's kind of gets at. Well, I'll ask you what what thoughts does that conjure up? I have a question before I answer that. A, a question that will inform my answer to that question. Do they enter, or are they there when the be- the, sh- the play begins? Do they enter to find to see Godot, or are are they already trying to see Godot? They're already trying to see Godot. Okay, because like to me that means that it sounds like there's an infinite aspect of it 
They always have been. They always will. And Godot will never show. It actually makes me wonder whether Godot is actually real. But mm. I have not read any of this, nor heard of any of this. I am basing this based off of what you just shared and read. Mm-hmm. Um, is that how a lot of the dialogue, a lot of the dialogue, is like very short yeah. sentences back and forth? Yeah, very short back and forth, witty, uh, kind of just funny. Um, but then the, you know there are other moments, just things that kind of hit you. Um, this feels like it'd be like so difficult to act out. There, there was an adaption um, with Sir Patrick Stewart, I think. Okay. Um, as one of the guys. I haven't seen it. I did look up one. Um, I looked up Lucky's tirade uh, because it is really just a brilliant uh, tirade. And I forget the name of the actor, but I will I will put a link to that in the show notes because it is a really good performance. Well, you got to tell, you got to, you've said this on your list, but before you read it, what do you think of my response and what what is your answer to your own question? And before that, do you mind re-asking your question? So my question was, um, what does what I read and shared, um, what thoughts does it conjure up? Mm. I assume they're in Russia. Um, or somewhere it doesn't where there's say. people named Vlad. Yeah, I mean, his name's Vladimir, and the other one's name is Estragon. So, <laughs> uh, I don't think Estragon is a Russian name. And then there's Potso and Lucky. Um, what do you think? What 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 is it? Uh, I shared kind of an answer that it sounds to me like they're they they have always and always will be there. Yeah, I. I, I agree with that, uh, and I think the play kind of supports that. It just kind of ends uh, with them saying that they'll go on and they don't move. Um, and to me, this I I almost read Vladimir and Estragon as um, not exactly it and ego, but kind of like this this struggle for uh meaning in in the human existence like mm. um they talk multiple times about hanging themselves um and they almost agree to do it but then they don't like one time they don't do it because um they're not sure if the bow would break <laughs> um uh i think I think Estragon says like maybe Vladimir should go first because Vladimir is heavier. Um, so if, if Estragon goes first, then uh, uh, you know Vladimir might end up alone and not be able to I don't know hang himself because the tree would break. Uh, I don't know. It, it's it's this kind of um, and if you if you know anything about existentialism. Um, basic idea and and please look this i'm i'm not i'm not a philosopher but the way that i understand it is that in the face of 
apparent meaninglessness of life you know um every all is all is vanity and a chasing after the wind the humanity makes its own meaning um through absurdism which is an offshoot of existentialism um just through existing and being and uh Vladimir and Estragon, uh, their nicknames are DD and Gogo, uh, that they call each other. Um, they're struggling to find meaning in, in just waiting for Godot. And um, if you take the interpretation that, that Godot is God, then I, I think Beckett has kind of a... I don't think I would agree with his interpretation of God being uh, so far kind of distant and mm -hmm. far off. And, um, and it mean, sounds like full of promises that aren't kept. Yeah. I mean, yes and no. Um, it's kind of ambivalent about that in the text. That it's not really, okay. it's not too much there. I don't think. Um I mean, God can seem far off, and that's something that I've struggled with in my life and feeling God's presence, but he is there. And um, uh, he does care about our, our day to day life um, and has an interest in it. But uh, I don't know. It's, it's, just, it's just a play that you kind of dwell on and. I dwell on it. That's why it's shaped me. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I want to ask more questions about that, but first I want you to read that piece by whoever the character was that you said it was by. Uh, Lucky. Yeah. Lucky. Yes. All right. Here we go. I got to loosen up here. Lucky I'm in love with my best friend. So Pazzo, um says that Lucky used to be able to do all kinds of things. He used to be able to dance and sing and think. And, and Pazzo's like, but I'd, I don't ask him to think anymore because it's just, it's just too terrible. I can't stand it. And um, Didi and Gogo are just like, okay, well, just we'll, we'll have him think. Well, first they try to have him dance and it's really sad. Um, and then... They have him think, and so they put a hat on him, a bowler hat, okay. and he starts thinking. And during Lucky's tirade, the others react as follows. Vladimir and Estragon all attention. Pazzo dejected and disgusted. Vladimir and Estragon begin to protest. Pazzo's sufferings increase. Vladimir and Estragon attentive again. Pazzo more and more agitated and groaning. Vladimir and Estragon protest violently. Pazzo jumps up, pulls on the rope. General outcry. Lucky pulls on the rope, staggers, shouts his text. All three throw themselves on Lucky, who struggles and shouts his text. <clears throat> Lucky. That's an, that's an opening. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. Please, <clears throat> go for it. Given the existence as uttered forth in the public works of Puncher and Watman of a personal God, 
qua, 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 qua with white beard, qua, 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 outside time without extension, who from the heights of divine apathia, divine athambia, divine aphasia, loves us dearly with some exceptions for reasons unknown, but time will tell, and suffers like the divine Miranda, with those who, for reasons unknown, but time will tell, are plunged in torment, plunged in fire, whose fire flames if that continues, and who can doubt it, will fire the firmament, that is to say, blast hell to heaven, so blue, still, and calm, so calm, with a calm which, even though intermittent, is better than nothing, but not so fast, and considering, what is more, that as a result of the labors left unfinished, crowned by the Academy of Anthropometry of Essie and Posse of Testu and Cunard, it is established beyond all doubt, all other doubt, than that which clings to the labors of men, that as a result of the labors unfinished of Testu and Cunard, it is established as here and after, but not so fast for reasons unknown, that as a result of the public works of Puncher and Watman, it is established beyond all doubt that in view of the labors of Fartoft and Belcher, left unfinished for reasons unknown of Testu and Cunard, left unfinished, it is established, what many deny, that man in posse of Testu and Cunard, that man in Essie, that man in short, that man in brief, in spite of the strides of alimentation and defecation, wastes and pines, wastes and pines, and concurrently, simultaneously, what is more, for reasons unknown, in spite of the strides of physical culture, the practice of sports such as tennis, football, running, cycling, swimming, flying, floating, riding, gliding, conating, kamagi, skating, tennis of all kinds, dying, flying, sports of all sorts, autumn, summer, winter, winter, tennis, of all kinds, hockey, of all sorts, penicillin, and succadania, in a word, I resume, flying, gliding, golf, over nine and 18 holes, tennis of all sorts, in a word, for reasons unknown, infect him, peck him, pull him, clap him, namely, concurrently, simultaneously, what is more, for reasons unknown, but time will tell, fades away, I resume, full him, clap him, in a word, the dead loss per head, since the death of Bishop Berkeley, being the tune of one inch, four ounce per head, approximately, by and large, more or less, to the nearest decimal, good measure, round figures, stark naked in the stocking feet, in Connemara, in a word, for reasons unknown, no matter what matter, the facts are there, and considering what is more, much more grave, that in the light of the labor's lofts of Steinweg and Peterman, it appears what is more, much more grave, that in the light, the light, the light of the labor's lost of Steinweg and Peterman, that in the plains and the mountains, by the seas, by the rivers, running water, running fire, the air is the same, and then the earth, namely the air, and then the earth, and the great cold, the great dark, the air and the earth abode of stones, and the great cold. Alas, alas, in the year of their Lord, six hundred and something, the air, the earth, the sea, the earth, abode of stones, and the great deeps, the great cold on sea, on land, and in the air. I resume for reasons unknown, in spite of the tennis, the facts are there, but time will tell. I resume, alas, alas, on, on, in short, and fine, on, on, abode of stones, who can doubt it? I resume, but not so fast, I resume, the skull fading, fading, fading. And concurrently, simultaneously, what is more, for reasons unknown, in spite of the tennis, on, on, the beard, the flames, the tears, the stones, so blue, so calm, alas, alas, on, on, the skull, the skull, the skull, the skull, in Connemara, in spite of the tennis, the labors abandoned, left unfinished, graver still, abode of stones, in a word I resume, alas, alas, abandoned, unfinished, the skull, the skull, in Connemara, in spite of the tennis, the skull, alas, the stones, cunard, melee, final vociferations. Tennis, the stone, so calm, cunard, unfinished. His hat!
<laughs> Vladimir seizes Lucky's hat. Silence of Lucky. He falls. Silence. Panting of the victors. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I am so impressed that you read that with nary a stumble. It 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 has a flow. Uh that's the second time I've read it, but uh it just like it keeps going and it rolls and it's but it means it's it's just so nonsensical. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I was gonna in the first uh I said when you were about thirty seconds through. It probably took me until like 20, 30 seconds into he was talking where I was like, okay, I have no idea what's happening. And then I tried to regain my, my composure back. Like, okay, Eric, you have to have something to respond to this <laughs> and ask some deep question. And then he kept going. And at one point I thought that maybe you were on a loop because you kept saying the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> and then I zoned out and then I zoned back in and then my wife came home and then it was still going. Yeah. I was going to ask you before, uh, before you read this, I had in my mind, I was going to ask you why you find this funny. Um, and then as you're reading this, the, the absurdity became very, very clear in a way that it hadn't been uh, yeah. up to this point. It's all in the dialogue, really. Just just the just a turn of phrase. Um it's a funny sentence, you know. Yeah. You chuckle. This is, you know, the most you could almost call this like the climax, I guess. It's the most exciting part of the play. In my mm -hmm. opinion, uh, <clears throat> where do characters come from? Like when they come onto the stage, like are they coming from a different place? They either come from stage uh, left or stage right. But like, is it assumed that they're coming from like a different city or a different area or a town or um, like I is this in a specific? Yeah, sorry. Yeah, Pazzo and Lucky seem to be traveling somewhere. I don't think it says exactly where uh, or from they're coming. They come back later and Pazzo is actually blind. He can't see anymore, um, which there's been a lot of speculation about what that might symbolize as well. Um, what is the timeline of this play? Does it happen over the course of, I thought it happened, based on what you said at the beginning, it sounded like it happened over the course of one day. Yeah, it's like a day or two. Um, you're not really sure how long they've been waiting there. Uh, you know, I assume it's a couple days, but you know, pots are coming back blind shows the passage of time. Um, but they, they don't, he doesn't give you a clear picture of the timeline. At least I didn't have any clear picture of it. And I read yeah. it. So why this? How has this shaped you? Um, 
I read this a few years ago um, with my wife, actually. Um, she, I think she had read it before. And we actually um, would do the lines back and forth as we were reading it, which okay. honestly I think is the best way to do it. It is so yeah. much fun to do with someone mm. um, because it's so funny and ridiculous and you'll just be laughing together. Um, and But I, I've never forgotten about it. Um, yeah. And I've uh, like, in spite of the tennis has always remained in my mind, um, which, which, uh, Lucky says in his tirade a lot, in spite of the tennis for reasons unknown. Um, yeah. And I, I, I really haven't thought too much about how much, how it has shaped me, but I think, I think what I think about when I think of this play is the fact that we can't fully understand everything in life. And okay. there's this sort of, um, I think in our culture, we we want to understand everything. We want there to be a study behind everything that explains why people do things the way that they do, um, that explains all of the natural world and human history. Mm -hmm. And it's not that I, I love science. Um, I, you know, I was watching all the curiosity stream documentaries about dinosaurs and that's all, that's all science. That's all archeology span um, and geology. And, and I love learning about the natural world, but science is not made Science is, is made to answer questions um, mm -hmm. and hypotheses. It's not made to be a basis on which you can you can live your entire life. Um, mm. And this play, and particularly Lucky's tirade, I think, is kind of a tirade that kind of blows up that whole notion of being able to reason out uh, the meaning of existence. Yeah, like you can't really do it logically. I mean, Sol King Solomon, who biblically is is one of the wisest figures of all time, said everything is vanity. Um, and I think over time, I've you know, it's it's kind of calming to sort of <laughs> just accept that. And yeah, enjoy the people you love and the things you love. One of the things that I've enjoyed or that I, that what you're sharing makes me think about and that I think is kind of pretty f profound uh, is actually from Star Trek. Uh, we might talk about it in a future <laughs> episode, um, but it was um, in the Orville actually, which is kind mm -hmm. of a parody Star Trek, um, but also super Star Trek-y. Um, and one of the kind of more profound, one of the lines that stood out to me is technology and ethics need to progress together. And when they don't, there can be major 
da- damage. And the most obvious piece, I think, is wind technology, and this and progresses much faster than ethics. Um, in I mean, just thinking about weapons of mass destruction is an example of that. Um, mm-hmm. And and Star Trek isn't the only one to do, even touch base on that, obviously. But I think that 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 to me is kind of this a little bit of a, a piece that's like answering the the how is not nearly as important if you don't have a why. Mm-hmm. Like how does something work matters because you can understand it better. Well, why does that thing exist in the first place? Um, are there greater aspects to it? Those questions need to be asked t- together. And mm-hmm. I do think we can very easily become focused, so hyper-focused on one side of the question that we get into the weeds and miss the big picture. Yeah. In my mind, that directly related to your statement right there on <laughs> science. Um, I'm realizing, as I've said out loud, that maybe I didn't tie the... Uh, <laughs> yeah, tie, tie the boat up as as clearly to the mooring. I don't know. I just tried to create that illustration from nowhere. <laughs> uh, I mean, it it's you know, I, waiting for Godot is a play that can take you anywhere, really. Um, and I think to to if we were to try and talk about what it means more, it wouldn't be as entertaining as just going and mm-hmm. reading it yourself or yeah. uh, looking up an adaption. Um, you can rent them. I think there's a couple free ones on YouTube that you can find. Um, or you can just read it. Uh, Hunter, if I were in your shoes, and I read this with my wife kind of earlier on in our marriage, as I'm sure I'm, I'm assuming that happened you know, in yours, to me that would be more than enough to make it a story that shaped me. Um, I, I can't... Right think of of many things that we've read back and forth to each other. Uh, And it sounds like that almost, I don't know how long that took. Uh, How long does this book take to read this poem? I mean, I read it in a couple hours. It's a quick play. Yeah. Like to me, that's like, oh, instead of like watching a movie, let's try something else out. Yeah, turn the screen off. mm -hmm. What a crazy idea in this modern day and age. Hmm. (laughs) <laughs> yeah so i i want to know what you've brought eric um before we do i'm gonna just leave an open-ended thing that i noticed when i was reading through the play this time if you get into waiting for godot and you want to read it and try to interpret it <laughs> good luck but here's one interpretation i'll end with um <laughs> <laughs> on on page 96 um in my edition, uh, talk that Pazzo needs help getting up because he's blind, and they keep saying things about him rather than actually helping him. Um, Estragon and Vladimir <laughs> are just kind of debating, and at one point, Estragon says, "He's all humanity." 
So one interpretation could be that Pazzo is, if Vladimir and Estragon are kind of like parts of someone's mind, then Pazzo is interacting with the rest of humanity, maybe representing mm-hmm. that. Um, so I'll leave that there. Yeah. Before but, we talk about mine, yeah. can I can I ask you a question? Just a question for clarification. Uh, you brought up ego and id, and I'm pretty sure you just referenced them again right there. Mm-hmm. What are ego and id? Can you define that? Just so the id uh, is a Freudian concept, the id and the ego. Um, it's not really used in modern psychology anymore, but it is kind of a general. You know, it was kind of onto something. The id is basically a representation of our impulses that we can't really control. Okay. Our uncontrolled impulses. Yeah. Desires, you know, you won't eat that cookie, do that thing that is not really mm-hmm. good for you, your your wants and emotions and all that kind of stuff that you can't control. Okay. Uh, and the ego is your prefrontal cortex, which, um, you know, as, as, the idea is that it's the part that kind of tries to put the brakes on and hold back the okay. it and, um, you know, stop it. And, and I said the prefrontal cortex because the prefrontal cortex is responsible for a lot of decision making and stuff. Um, yes. he, Freud didn't know anything about the prefrontal cortex, but. <laughs> Ooh, um, an anachronism. I love those. Yeah. Hidden the ego. I don't think that Vlad and, 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 uh, Didi and Gogo aren't, it's not that binary, you know, like okay. maybe you can make a case of Vladimir is the ego and Estragon is the id because Estragon seems more keen. I believe Estragon suggests suicide, um, but it's not really, it's not that, uh, I mean, Vladimir just like agrees with him kind of. So, so it's, it's not that black and white. I don't, I don't think personally, but so strange. This is weird, but it's absurd. It's mentality of it. Um, I feel like I could ask a lot more questions, but I'm okay with leaving that where it is. Yeah. Huh. Well, Hunter, I brought uh, a much shorter um, piece okay. than yours. Um, it's something that I've, I think this is probably my, probably at least my third or fourth time reading. Mm. Um, and before I share it, uh, it's actually written by somebody who you referenced on a previous episode on our Edgar Allan Poe episode. You read a quote by this author referencing other authors that Poe influenced. Do you remember who it was? I don't think you've ever read this author. I don't remember who wrote the foreword. Um, Jorge Luis Borges. Oh, yeah. Yeah, right. Have you read anything by Borges? I have not. Okay. Well, Borges was an Argentinian... Author, uh, born in 1899, I think it is. Uh, And he lived until 1986 and is buried in Switzerland. 
Uh, and he wrote many short stories and poems. And what I'm bringing today is a short story that I read um, 10 years ago now hmm. um, in a course called Parables. Uh, and it is the Library of Babel. Okay. Hunter, I, I'm sure I've brought this up to you at some point. Um because it is one of my short favorite short stories. It's uh, my copy. It's seven pages long. Mm. Um, it took me over a half hour to re re read it. Mm. Um, just cause I, I love it. It's so rich. Uh, and the basic premise of it is that there is a universe that is made up of a library. Mm. So there's nothing outside of the library, outside of the library, outside of the railings, of the library is, the nothingness of space. Each it, the library is made up of hexagons, so six-sided shapes. Um, on four of the six walls, there are bookshelves, and there's a very specific number of bookshelves on each um, that they go up to this. There are five long shelves per se- per side, so there's twenty shelves altogether. Their height um, scarcely exceeds that of a normal bookcase. So I'm guessing they're about seven feet tall. On each of the five shelves of each bookshelf, there are 35 books of a uniform format. And each book is 410 pages. Each page of 40 lines, each line of some 80 letters, which are black in color. There are also letters on the spine of each book. And then there, um, on the two walls where there are no bookshelves, there's a hallway that has two doors. One is a stand, a room where you can uh, sleep standing up. And one is where you can dispose of fecal matter, according <laughs> to the book. Uh, and then in that same area, there is a staircase going up and a staircase going down. Spiral staircase. And then it brings you into the next room. And the uh, short story as a whole is begins by describing this library, which I've come to kind of think of as an endless Catan board um, <laughs> <laughs> with a little roads then and, sh- and ships that you uh, put between, <laughs> between each, um, but much more in like a, a, um, um, big bang theory is like 3d chess so there's there's three dimensional layers of it too so you could go up um and the idea is it goes on forever but at the same point it is known that it doesn't go on forever um because there's only a limited number of books um mm-hmm. because when they when you do the math out it's not an infinite number and so it's about the history of humans or librarians in the library and some of their great findings, some of the couple of the truths they found as they've read different books. Um, I'll go into some of the different pieces kind of as we go on. I, I was trying to think about why this book, 
why this short story sticks out to me because it's like <laughs> it's unlike a lot of the other things I enjoy. Like, let's be honest, like my favorite type of reading is like high fantasy. Like, I love me some Robert Jordan, some Brandon Sanderson, you know, Tolkien. Um, I love um, all sorts of authors. Um, is I just named some really famous well-known authors, but um, this is not that at all. Mm. This is much more theoretical, much more in your mind, um, and much more like analyzing the infinite nature of things while also understanding their finiteness. Um, yeah, that's what I brought. It was written in 1941 and is in a collection of books, a collection of short stories that I, I read um, called Labyrinths. That's where I will begin my, my, uh, my statement about what I brought. Okay. Library of Babel. I like that reference. Uh, the tower to the Tower of Babel, mm -hmm. <laughs> where there was a uh, a universal language of people trying to build their way up to the tallest building so they could touch God, and it was cast down by God, and, and people were broken into different languages mm -hmm. and scattered across the ends of the earth. Yeah. Have you heard of this before? Have you read it? Have you? No, I haven't. What do you uh, think of this idea? It's cool. It's uh, it's really interesting. It reminds me of um, a short story by uh, Asimov. Okay. Called Entropy. Okay. Um, I I don't know if it's titled Entropy or not. It, it's about entropy. And have you have you heard of it? I've not. Oh, it's a uh, it's it's a good one. Uh, you can read pretty quickly. Um, okay. But it it basically asks um, people are asking computers through throughout history. Computers they're trying to solve the problem of entropy, whereby uh, all heat eventually dissipates. Um, mm -hmm. And so that the idea is that eventually the universe will go cold. Um, <clears throat> Jasimov was writing in, I think, like 50s or something. Um, but I'm not going to spoil it because it's, it's just a really great read and it's really quick. But it does go to that kind of... Um, it's, it's not exactly... I wouldn't call it hard science fiction. Because hard science fiction, in, in my opinion, involves a lot of like detailed scientific. Um, you have to work through all the, the detailed science of how things are actually working. This is like reminds me of like theoretical experimental science fiction, um, kind of like a thought experiment. I guess that mm -hmm. is a much simpler way of saying that. Yeah, I mean, I think that's kind of what the Library of Babel is too. Yeah. It's like, how do we use this? And and I might try to dabble into kind of one of the of what I think it might be saying at a theological or level, but I'm not even sure about that. So, 
Hunter, there are throughout these these eight pages, there is uh, a lot of the history of this world that we learn about. Um, so is this planet Earth? Is this library about planet Earth or is it about a different planet? This is uh, how it begins. The universe, parentheses, which others call the library, parentheses, is composed of an indefinite and perhaps infinite number of hexagonal galleries with vast air shafts between, surrounded by lower railings. So yes and no. Okay. Is it Earth? Yes. Is it Earth? No. So there are no planets. There's just these hexagonal... This is the universe, yes. Um, oh. And... The, there are different theories that exist within this universe about um, who, how, how to find order within it, whether there is any order, whether there is a God, how to find God. Mm. The, the classic dictum within this universe is the library is a sphere whose exact center is any one of its hexagons and whose circ- circumference circumference is inaccessible. Hmm. And so it's, it's full of, let me just go through it. Um, there are, are a couple axioms. Uh, what is an axiom? I always forget what an axiom is. It's like a statement. A true saying. Yes. Yeah, okay, great. True statement. Something to live by. Okay. So there are a couple statements to live by. Um, A couple core truths to this universe. The first is that the library, which is the universe, exists ab eterno, which means from time immemorable. Mm -hmm. The library has always existed. And humanity is the imperfect librarian. Um, So... Humanity did not create the the the, the library, um, so the the assumption or the the realization is that it can only be the work of a god. Hmm. In fact, there have been others who have tried to. There, there are different <laughs> groups of of um, people throughout the history of in the library who have tried to who have taken different intense views on on the library's truths and one such group of people um tried to recreate the books of the library um by pretty much shaking a a lettered die a 23 23 sided a 25 sided dice big cup and whatever it lands on, writing that letter. So, kind of that idea of you have an uh, infinite number of of monkeys writing an infinite for an infinite amount of time. They can write everything. But second is that the orthographical symbols are twenty five number. This was a really big, important piece that um, was part of the the history of the one of the greatest achievements of mm. the librarians as they understood the library is that every single book. Has is 
a combination of 22 letters, a space, a period, and a comma. So those 25 symbols make up every book. Um, and it's 25. So it's not like upper and lower. It's 25 altogether. So it's, I think they're all either they're all uppercase or they're all lower, lowercase. Is it like the alphabet? Yes. Okay. Yes. It also, um, the, the, the realization, the reason that this realization took so long is because it was, there are multiple different languages that people speak and there's depth of, trying to figure out oh. uh, when different things, what languages things are in um, because of the combination of the same letters. Like this, it's the same alphabet. Oh, but, but a different language, but different languages. Cause so this oh. is what this, the second idea of it, the second axiom um, it means that for every sensible line of straightforward or, or of straightforward statement, there are leagues of senseless cacophonies, verbal jumbles, and incoherences. In spite of the tennis. Yeah. <laughs> um, one of the big pieces that led to the realization that there were in fact, um, incomprehensible aspects of, of these books. It's a, that was a big step. So at one point people, the librarians thought that this, that every single book meant something specifically. Um, and they would spend all this time to, with allegory and with, um, deciphering and with codexes and all these different pieces. Hmm. But at one point, somebody found a book that was 410 pages of inalterable MCVs, capital M, capital C, capital V. So what 1,105 is my uh, Roman numeral attempt mm-hmm. to understand that for 410 straight pages. And so there's, that was led to the realization like, Hey, that there's, there's, there's no way of trying to understand this as being a comprehensible mm-hmm. thing. And of course, then he goes on and talks about how some people have some insinuated that each letter could influence the following one. And that the value of MCV in the third line of page 71 was not the one of the same series was not the one the same series may have had in another position on another page, but this vague thesis did not prevail. Hmm. <laughs> so those are the two core axioms where did the books come from they have always existed oh, so the the books okay. existed before the librarians the librarians ex- the library existed before the librarians okay. and so that's the understanding that there is a god or some greater being um because who wrote the books who wrote the books and why are the books all so perfectly written? Um, here it is. The original manuscript does not contain digits or capital letters. The punctuation has been limited to the comma and the period. These two signs, the space and the 22 letters of the alphabet are the 25 symbols considered sufficient by this unknown author. And so every, 
every shelf is lined with these books. Hmm. And in the spaces where there are, are books that have other combinations of letters and numbers, those are um, were written by by the librarians at different points in their own attempts of recreating things. Hmm. <clears throat> I'm going to read a couple of my favorite quotes as I kind of dive through a, 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 and dive in, then dive into a couple other pieces about this. Um, the library is total and its shelves register all the possible combinations of the 20 odd orthographical symbols, a number which though extremely vast is not infinite. Everything. The minutely detailed history of the future, the arch archangels autobiographies, the faithful catalog of the library, thousands and thousands of false catalogs, the demonstration of the fallacy of, of those catalogs, the demonstration of the fallacy of the true catalog, the Gnostic gospel of Basilides, the commentary on that gospel, the commentary on the commentary on that gospel, the true story of your death, the translation of every book in all languages, the interpolations of every book in all books. <laughs> what? <laughs> so... This is the idea. If you have an infinite number of books, everything exists. So the truth about how each of us will die, as well as the commentary about the truth about how we'll die, as well as the commentary on the commentary on the truth of the way we'll die, as well as the false way that we'll die, and the commentary on why that's a false way. And so... When it was one of the big, again, pieces in, in the history of the library is this realization that every, everything exists, people got excited because that meant all of a sudden that there was no personal or world problem whose solution did not exist in some hexagon on some uh, wall of some yeah. shelf. Uh, they that was then they were called the vindications, uh, books of apology and prophecy, which vindicated for all times the acts of every man in the universe um, and proclaimed their future. So the idea that these vindications, there's a vindication for each of us that exists out there, made people hopeful until it's like people start fighting over this and all these things until yeah. they realized that the the probability <laughs> of finding your own vindication. That's actually accurate is practically zero mm. because it's, I think it's, um, and I'll, I'll show you a, a cool resource in a minute, but I think the, the total number of, of books possible is 10 to the 4,677th possibilities. <laughs> <laughs> So, but the reality of this, and so after that hope, there was followed by a ma major depression. And so actually, it talks about how at one point, um, there was a, a, a man for every three hexagons. There was a librarian for every three hexagons in the library. But over mm -hmm. time, due to suicide and pulmonary disease, <laughs> uh, that number is shrunk ultimately to the ex expectation that at some point the librarians will no longer exist, but the library will library library will continue to go on. 
I see. Um, at one fat part in, in history, and this, I've been enjoying walking through this because it's just, it's absurd. It, it is, it's a different type of absurd, uh, but it's, <laughs> I find it really, it really interesting to think about. Um, at one point, there are a group of people called the purifiers who were of the opinion that they should eliminate useless works. Oh in the library. And so they, they do is they would find them and they'd throw them over the edge of one of those railings. Mm. Um, and the, and just like the, the library goes forever up and down, even though they know for a fact it can't go forever up and down, but nobody's ever found the end of it. Um, your, the book would forever fall and deteriorate on the way, which is also what they did with bodies. Um, <laughs> your body would deteriorate as it's forever falling. Kind of like in Spy Kids uh, it's 3, I think. Spy Kids 2 or 3, when um, they feel like they're falling forever. But in reality, they're just... In their case, they're just in a cave with like a little wind tunnel. Yeah, I think it's Spy Kids 3. Okay, yeah. Spy Kids 3D. Yeah, um, I watched that movie quite a lot. You know what's yeah. funny? Do you know who that was directed by? No. The same Robert guess. Robert Rodriguez, who directed El Mariachi. Really? Yeah. <laughs> what? Yeah. <laughs> he did Spy Kids. Okay. Huh. So the idea of these purifiers, they throw books over the shelves. And people got incredibly frustrated. Hmm. Until you know, and and that they were you know that no longer happens at least in any regular way. But in reality, even if millions of books were destroyed, the library is so enormous that any reduction of human origin is infinitesimal. <laughs> and if you, every book is completely unique, there are no two books that are the exact same. Mm. But what that could mean is that of the 3,200 characters on each of the 410 pages, as well as the spine, there, there will be hundreds of thousands of almost like facsimiles to a book uh, that you destroy. Because there'll be hmm. a, a, another book somewhere that has 410 pages, 3,199 of the same characters. But that one, an A for an E. Mm-hmm. will be changed. Ah, I can't keep going. Um, let me think about a couple of things. Do, do you have any anything coming up for you as, as I'm sharing this? There is no end to the making of many books, and much study wearies the body. It's from uh, Ecclesiastes. Hmm. I feel like both of our, both things that we inadvertently brought that we brought were uh, reflected in or taken partially from Ecclesiastes. Yeah. Um, here's a, cu- a couple more things that kind of stuck out to me. It's, um, quotes. No one can articulate a syllable which is not filled with tenderness and fear, which is not in one of these languages the powerful name of a god. 
so that's one of the other pieces of core tenets of the library is there are an infinite number of languages and secret languages <laughs> such that any combination of any letters could also be something full of truth. It's, and then there's, I've been kind of flipping through the pages as I've been going through this. I'm on the last page now. Um, the certitude that everything has been written negates us or turns us into phantoms. Mm-hmm. But that's something to kind of chew on. Uh, this whole thing's been written by uh, uh, being written by a man um, who is old and going to die soon. Thinks that the the whole population of library is going to fizzle out in the not too long, you know, future. Mm-hmm. And it, he one of his one of the last statements he makes is, "Perhaps my old age and fearfulness deceive me, but I suspect that the human species, the unique species, is about to be extinguished." But the library will endure. Illuminated, solitary, infinite, perfectly motionless, equipped with precious volumes, useless, incorruptible, secret. I have just written the word infinite. I have not interpolated this adjective out of a rhetorical habit. I say that it is not illogical to think that the world is infinite. Those who judge it to be limited pop postulate that in remote places, the corridors and stairways and hexagons can conceivably come to an end, which is absurd. Those who imagine it to be without limit forget that the possible number of books does have such a limit. I venture to suggest this solution to the ancient problem. The library is unlimited and cyclical. If an eternal traveler were to cross it in any direction, after centuries he would see that the same volumes were repeated in the same order, which thus repeated would be in order. The order. My solitude is gladdened by this elegant hope. That's how the story ends. When, when was this written? 1941. Wow. Here's a quote that I think you might know. If honor and wisdom and happiness are not for me, let them be for others. Let heaven exist, though my place be in hell. I don't know if that's a a well-known quote, but I feel like that's one thing I was like, I feel like I've heard that before. What do you think of this? I've kind of walked through it. but I, I'm interested to hear your thoughts. I asked when it was written because uh, I was thinking about how we live in the information age mm. and how even though we have an access, we have access to an unlimited library, anyone with an internet connection can find any information and yet it almost feels like we know less than we did before more mm. conspiracy theories gaining ground and becoming accepted um 
by a lot of people. Uh, and, and maybe those have always been there and just not have been as visible that as visible. But I think that the internet has kind of enabled it. And mm. I don't know, just thinking about how the great challenge of the internet is that there, there's so much drivel and so much um, bad information that it's really hard unless you've you know been trained to and taught how to do it it's really hard to, to kind of sift through and find the good information and the information mm. that you can trust um which seems like this 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 story is is grappling with the problem of infinite knowledge um yeah before there ever was an internet So you've just struck on one of the things that I think is really fascinating. I bumped into this as I was doing a little bit of research before episode, and I just sent it to you. And um, please do should make sure this is in the the, the, the show notes. Uh, this is a website called LibraryOfBabel.info. If you go to this website, there are a few different things you can do. Um, but what I'd encourage you to do is to. Um, Click the random button. That's what I did. <laughs> if you click the random button, um, it will bring you to a random page on a random shelf of a random hexagon oh, of the library. And this particular website contains every book. So every, go to the about page. Um, thus, it, it contains every book ever written, every book that could ever be written, including every play, every song, every scientific paper, every legal decision, every constitution, every piece of scripture, and so on. And one of the things that... Uh, is on the about pages. There is actually a Babel um, forum, Library of Babel forum on Reddit, mm -hmm. that people have noted specific pages. And there are some people that just kind of have it open on their computer while they're working, scrolling through it, trying to see if anything shows up. <laughs> and one of the the pieces that really I thought was hilarious uh, was somebody somebody po said uh, posted. Imagine getting rickrolled in the library of Babel. <laughs> it's like reading a page and every, so every, all of a sudden it says, never going to give you. A... <laughs> and I thought that just was really funny. Um, yeah. But. This is really cool. <laughs> yeah, it is. It, it is. It's. Uh, this is one of his most well-known and loved of, of of Jorge Luis Borges is uh, like most well-known um, writings um, of all the pieces he did. Hmm. Um, he actually himself went, went blind and the, the author, uh -huh. um, he began losing his sight in his thirties and was appointed director of the national library after Perón's, Exile in Argentina. 
despite being completely blind. Uh, and the narrator, the librarian who narrates the Library of Babel references this condition. Now that my eyes can hardly make out what I myself have written, I am preparing to die. Mm-hmm. Man. What a, an idea of, of the inf- infinite. Um, and also defining the infinite as something that by definition, at least in this world, this universe cannot be infinite, but might as well be infinite. (laughs) Right. Might as well. And, and this is one of the things that strikes me about short stories. Um, and I, I, before I decided to share this one, I was thinking actually about two other books, both of which now as I reflect are, are both combinations of short stories. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and the way that you can create a universe with depth, with meaning, with complexity and questions that focuses in on, on one or two specific things that could then cause people to think and grapple with ideas of existence um, to do that in eight pages. <laughs> I love the power of words. <laughs> yeah. Which is great for this particular story. I think that's one of the yeah. pieces that I, I keep coming back to this. And I, this is a thing that I recommend to people. Um, not because I'm like, Oh, like this is the story that it's telling. This is the, the takeaway you should have. Mm-hmm. No, it's. I think it's. It's partially because of the idea of the thought experiment that's happening, um, but also the questions on the infinite, um, and and mm. you know, I I asked that question: Who created the books? Um, but I also just love reading it. I, I love reading it, and I don't have a great reason why. Yeah. Was it? Uh... Originally written in, in English or uh, a great translated? Um, no, it's original. Sorry, the, I, the original language was Spanish. I had that right in front of me. I yeah, just didn't. That's what I. Um, so, original I language guess. was Spanish in, in 1941. Originally called La Biblioteca de Babel. De Babel. Um, it's the kind of stuff I love. Um, yeah. Especially because it's so early. I mean, 1941, you know? Mm-hmm. That's what I like about Asimov, too, is just his kind of ideas about technology and computers and things. Um, but I think we said last time that one of the marks of of great art is it is timeless. Mm-hmm. Dear, one of the things as I've talked with people about our podcasts uh, that I've heard is, is an interest. And I, I totally understand this because it, it reflects some of my own podcast listening, but an interest in, in listening to episodes that relate to things that you're particularly interested in. Mm-hmm. And I'd be interested to see if our of our viewing fully kind of 
shows that? Like, are there more people that listen to the more well-known pieces? Um, Probably. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think that that's, there's some things that are missed in that. Um, yeah. Cause I mean, that's what I often do. I often stay to stay to my lane or what I think my lane is and what I know. Um, yeah. But one of the beauties of, of kind of going out of it is, is just like in the tower at the library of Babel, you open up a book, you don't know what's going to be inside and you might find a gem that really shapes you. You might find a story, a storyteller that shapes you. And there are all sorts. Borges is filled with fantastic. Let me read one. It's a one page, half a page uh, parable. It's called Parable of Cervantes and the Quixote. (laughs) I literally just opened up to this. How funny is that? I have not read this in 10 years, so. No idea what it's like. Tired of his Spanish land, an old soldier of the king sought solace in the vast geographies of Ariosto, in that valley of the moon, where the time wasted by dreams is contained and in the golden idol of Mohammed stolen by Montalban. In gentle mockery of himself, he imagined a credulous man who, perturbed by his reading of marvels, decided to seek prowess and enchantments in prosaic places called El Toboso or Montiel. Vanquished by reality, by Spain, Don Quixote died in his native village in the year, of 16, in the year 1614. He was survived by but a short time by Miguel de Cervantes. For both of them, for the dreamer and the dreamed one, the whole scheme of the work consisted in the opposition of two worlds the unreal world of the books of chivalry, the ordinary everyday world of the century of the 17th century. They did not suspect that the years would finally smooth away that discord. They did not suspect that La Mancha and Montiel and the knight's lean figure would be for posterity, no less poetic than the episodes of Sinbad or the vast geographies of Ariosto. For in the beginning of literature is myth, and in the end as well. Hmm. He was survived by Miguel de Cervantes. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, I'd heard of Borges, but he has now skyrocketed to the top of my (laughs) reading list. (laughs) So... I'm going to give two, two quick pieces. First is um, the other, the uh, one that's worth reading is called the three versions of Judas, Judas, J U D I A S. Um, the question of, of, you know, was Judas unimportant, incredibly important or as important as God, as Jesus uh, is kind of this question. Um, but, just an idea of how much I love this particular book. <clears throat> when I got it, I went to the college bookstore at um, <clears throat> college, and I, in my innocence and stupidity, decided to rent it 
mm-hmm. for a semester. Um, and I am a person who loves taking notes. At the end of the semester, I was like, shoot, like I put, you know, I've made so many notes in my, my copy of this, like I want to keep it. Um, and I went to, I brought, instead of just like keeping it and then paying whatever thing they charged me, I brought it back and it's like, hey, can I buy it? And they said, no. Really? So it's only shows up when that particular class was taught, right? Mm-hmm. So the next year, when the class was taught again and a friend of mine was taking it, I went to the bookstore, rifled through all of the copies, found <laughs> the one that I had annotated, <laughs> and bought it. <laughs> To then let, let my friend use for the semester and then got it back. Like, oh, man. <laughs> I have never done anything like that before. That's uh, hilarious. Nor anything like that since. But I spent probably <laughs> three times the amount that this book actually costs <laughs> in order to not only have it, but to have the specific copy of it. <laughs> oh, man. Wow. And you such a rule follower normally. It's <laughs> <laughs> a big deal. Yeah, yeah. I love writing in books, man. There's there's such a good way to interact with it. I have a very different opinion. Do you? Yeah. <laughs> I uh well it I realized I I kept having to buy a new Bible every few years because I would put notes in it and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and I decided I wasn't going to write in the, in the new Bible I got. It was like had a, the newest one I have is a, a new English translation. Newer has like a ton of notes and stuff and I didn't want to, wanted to have it last. So, you know, all of my notes go into a journal and I'll copy passages and stuff. Um, and, and, you know, it is a nice way to interact with it. But at the same time, it means that I can't read it twice in, in a fresh way. Because I feel like mm. when I'm reading um, a book and there's a passage underlined, it, it doesn't really matter who underlined it, if it yeah. was me or not. I immediately start to think, oh, maybe that's an important passage. But, you know when you read you don't know what's going to what's going to jump out out at you the second time so yeah. um my i i broke myself of the habit of writing in books um and uh you know i i i understand i i get it but uh you know i i i wrote a a poem about the person who owned um the divine conspiracy before me <laughs> Um, because they would write question marks next to paragraphs. Um, like if, if they were a little bit confusing, (laughs) I was like, this annoys me. Um, (laughs) it was a used book. So, you know, it happens, but then I, I just started reading the book with an eraser. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, to each their own. Mm -hmm. I take all the notes I take are, are, 49 times out of 50 uh, in pencil 
Yeah. And I actually have have learned that if I really want to come back to something, I need to take the notes in pencil with a ruler. <laughs> draw straight lines. <laughs> I've learned that about myself. Um, you're right. It does interact with, it does impact the way you read something in the future. Um, but yes. Uh I am grateful that you've taken time to to hear a little bit about the Library of Babel. I yeah. enjoyed learning about um searching you know, waiting for Godot. Um and um uh, we purposely chose two two stories that we wouldn't spend an entire episode on. Um yeah. and I enjoyed it. Uh, yeah, they they were actually related. <laughs> yes, they were. Uh, yeah. Mm. Oh, Hunter, I hope you have a great night. Uh, thank you all for listening. Feel free to send us questions um, at this point um, in our podcasting. I am sure most, if not everybody who's listening, <laughs> knows one of us personally. <laughs> <laughs> and has our contact information. <laughs> if by any chance you are not one of said people, um, Hunter shared his website and Twitter handle last week. Feel free to send him a message there. Um, Peach dancing. Yeah. <laughs> like I said, no one really adds me, so. <laughs> we'll read it if it's civil (laughs) (laughs) and absurd of course yeah i mean i'll read it if it's not civil but uh might not respond if it's yeah yeah (laughs) well hunter uh i always enjoy our conversations i'm excited to raise a glass uh with you again next week and then we're gonna go on a little bit of a break yeah for the holidays yeah, so we'll kind of come at you next week with a little bit more information about what to expect over for when our second season. Uh, how many season episodes have two. we done? Uh, like 16. Wow. 17. That's awesome. Uh, I've got some exciting, I think we've got some exciting things cooked up for next season. Yeah. So, already kind of working on it. As always, we'll end with our <laughs> nonverbal goodbye. <laughs> so helpful to see. <laughs> Shall we end the podcast? Sorry, I was trying to make a waiting for Godot reference. Uh, yeah, like anybody would have known that. They will now. <laughs> uh-huh. uh. <laughs> you could you could read it in the time it took to listen to this podcast. Most of it. Probably. Maybe we should have a podcast episode where we just read it back and forth. <laughs> yeah. It would work. Maybe. Anyway. In all sorts. Yeah. <laughs> that was my attempt at uh, waiting for a good dope quote. In spite of the tennis. Of all sorts. <laughs> Yeah.